Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante. If you know this podcast, you know that in each episode, we take on a passage from Dante's masterwork comedy, but not now. (laughs) Not now, because this is an interpolated episode, one of several that I want to stick inside this podcast. This one is actually going to be part one of a much longer discussion on the seven deadly sins. We're going to sit here with the seven deadly sins all the way through Inferno and mm, most of the way through Purgatorio. So I kind of want to start a discussion about what these things are. I know this may sound horrid. Oh, my God. You promised me a podcast on Dante that we didn't descend into the weeds of theology. I know, but this is kind of necessary. How'd they get to be seven of them? Why are they deadly? How are they sins? It's a whole big matter. So let's start this discussion of what are the seven deadly sins. First, they're sins. That may seem self-evident. You may say, what in the world? That is so self-evident. But what actually is a sin? In the Christian tradition, Sin comes from the word hamartia, which basically means missing the mark. It's a oh, an archery word. So if you pull your bow back and you let your arrow go and you don't actually hit the target or don't hit it right or hit it off, it's missing the mark, hamartia. And that is kind of the notion of sin, that there is a good And sin is the various ways you miss the good, or you don't hit the good, or you can't get to the good. That definition that I just gave you is pretty open-ended. And you know that any organization, and we're talking about the church starting to build its structure, any organization is going to have to finally develop (laughs) procedural manuals. If you start a company tomorrow, uh, you know, and it's, you're going to make, you're going to make jam in your basement. Okay. So you start your company and yeah, things go good and you start selling it in the stores and then Whole Foods picks it up and you get more and more employees. And there's going to come this moment when you're going to start to have to develop human resources manuals. (laughs) You're going to have to develop procedural manuals and all this bureaucracy and codification of your practices are all going to have to start surrounding you. Well, this is this is it. This is a pretty open-ended idea, missing the mark. Lots of things could miss the mark. Okay, so it's your birthday, and I come to your birthday, and I don't bring a present, or I bring a crappy present, or you say, bring champagne, and I bring, I don't know, $1.99 sparkling wine from the drugstore. I missed the mark. Did I sin? I didn't hit the mark right. In theology, no. And in fact, you know, it doesn't feel right to you. It feels like I'm cheap and I'm an idiot and I'm <laughs> not taking this very seriously to bring you my $1.99 bottle of sparkling wine from the drugstore. But it's still uh, sin? That seems pretty big. So we got to figure out what this missing the mark is and how does that work? And you miss the mark. And part of the problem is, well, to be flat, Jesus. Jesus is part of the problem because Jesus seems to make a very wild definition of sin. He seems to define sin not just as what you do, but what you think. Remember old Jimmy Carter and when asked if he'd ever sinned and he said, I lusted in my heart. He got so made fun of. Listen, I don't hold to this tradition, but he shouldn't have been made fun of. He's a Christian, and lusted in his heart is honestly part of the 
Christian notion of what sin is. You see, he's not, it's not, it sounded funny for people who don't necessarily hold to a Christian way or think they hold to a Christian way but aren't. But that's being serious. In other words, he's using a definition of sin derived from Jesus that it's not just the action, it's also just imagining doing it that counts as sin. Suddenly, right there, Jesus set a problem down into theology that the church is going to have to try to solve. If it's not just an action, well, then what in the world is it? The church fusses around with this a while until we get an interesting figure, a figure uh, from Constantinople, a a monk, really, honestly, just a pole sitter. <laughs> Evagrius Ponticus, his name in Greek is Euagrios, but Evagrius Ponticus. He's a late 4th century pole sitter, you know, an ascetic, somebody who has is trying to deny the body, sit up on a pole, go in a cave, do all this kind of stuff to try to deny the physical to get himself closer and closer to God. He's actually a fairly interesting figure. We don't know much about him except from the writing of others, but there are are writings left of his, even in Syriac. Some of them may or may not be forgeries uh, or later uh, writings attributed to him. Some of them may be his. Interesting shadowy figure, but we're talking uh, late 4th century, so maybe like 375 common era sometime around in there. You should know that at this point, the church is still battling out the problem of codifying what the New Testament is. So it's not necessarily our New Testament books, and there are books being received as canonical, but you've got all kinds of Gnostics running around who are arguing for other Gospels, and you don't have a set text. It's not like everybody walked into church and voila, the New Testament. So you, you have a kind of open-ended, strange, morphing notion of what is and isn't correct theology. Enter Evagrius and his writings. Evagrius wants to try to define what it is he's being an ascetic to get away from. In other words, if I'm going to deny myself things, well, what is it that I'm denying myself? If I have to pull back and restrain myself in order to get closer to God, what is it that I have to pull back and restrain? Surely it's not bad sparkling wine at a birthday party. Surely it's something else. If Agrius comes up with a notion of eight evil thoughts that uh, control your actions, and notice he's trying to do the Jesus thing. He's trying to start it as it's a thought process, a process internally that then comes out into action. Interesting, right? It's interesting for me because now the definition of sin theologically is mostly the other way around. It's mostly external leading to internal. It's action that then sets in progress certain thinking attitudes. But it's not that way when it starts. And it starts because Jesus sets this problem theologically. I know this is a lot to say about it, but let's go to Evagrius's eight evil thoughts. Here they are. Prostitution. You're going to say, wait, that's a thought? Sounds like an action. Oh, I'm just telling you. Just telling you how it was with the eight evil thoughts. Prostitution, gluttony, greed, despair, despondency, anger, vainglory, and pride. Basically, you know what I'm going to say about this. These are all the ways to build a fence around the pasture. These are the ways that you put your posts in your fence. Okay, here's my post. Prostitution, gluttony, greed, despair, despondency, anger, vainglory, you know, boasting, vainglory, and pride. Those are the, my posts. Now, everything... <laughs> 
beyond those posts is unacceptable. And what we have to do is get inside here beyond the posts into this nice green pasture or the top of this pole or the back of this cave or wherever we want to be. And we have to then deny these things, these thoughts, and we have to somehow figure out how to live in our pasture in which these things are disallowed. They're the posts, they're the edge, they're the limits. That's what they're doing. They're setting down limits of behavior. If Agrius claimed that all of this arises from too much love of the self, interesting because that's going to come back in comedy. We're going to actually see that thought, that old, old definition of what are the basic sins. We're going to see it actually rehearsed or brought forward in purgatory. Okay, so... In other words, Evagrius is going to be with us for a while, sitting back behind us. But you'll notice that those are eight evil thoughts, eight things to control. But you say there are seven deadly sins. Yes, we have to wait for Pope Gregory I, the great Pope Gregory I, who did so much to hold, codify, to preserve Western culture. I always say, if there wasn't for Gregory I, there would be no Fleetwood Mac. Because Gregory I sets in motion the motions of music and harmony. And oh my God, the Western tradition is just banging forward from Gregory I. So Gregory is very important to the preservation and development of Western culture. And in 590, Pope Gregory I rearranged Evagrius's list. And what he did is he combined despair or sadness and despondency into one sin, sloth. You know, <laughs> you know, laziness sloth. He combined despondency and despair into this one sin. And you may say that's really weird. How is laziness like despair and despondency? I suppose it's about sitting around and not doing anything. And I should tell you right here, there are many, many people who claim that, remember the neutrals up there that are following the flag and being stung by the wasps and they didn't ever choose? There are many people who have claimed that actually what's being punished there is the sin of sloth, that these were the lazy people who didn't choose and therefore they are being, you know, driven wild and running like mad animals around this place, following the flags, <laughs> being, in other words, not sitting on their couch, not being lazy, but being driven round and round about. I don't buy that, and I don't buy that because sloth is one of the seven deadly sins, and it is then not punished in hell. It's not one of the circles of hell. It's on a portal of hell. And so I don't actually buy it, especially since going forward now, we're going to hit seven deadly sins one after the other. Canto five is about lust. Canto six is going to be about gluttony. Canto seven is going to be about avarice. The back part of Canto seven and Canto eight is going to be about anger. I mean, we're going to hit Canto nine about anger. We're going to, we're going to hit the seven deadly sins one after the other here. And well, why wouldn't sloth be one of the rings of hell? So I don't it, but it is a big interpretive tradition to say that those people chasing that flag up there with the guy who made the great refusal, that they're all being punished for sloth. Okay, so back to Gregory. Gregory combines despondency and despair to create, create, to name this sin sloth, and he combines boasting 
or vainglory into pride to make just one sin pride. Well, now you know we got six sins. We have six of them and there's supposed to be seven, right? That's because Gregory does that so he can add a seventh sin. First of all, he wants seven to give it a kind of divine imprimatur. And he wants to add a sin to this list. He wants to add envy. Envy is the great medieval sin. Sin, if sin can be great. It is the great obsession in the Middle Ages. And envy is not what you think it is, at least in a medieval theological, Christian theological context. It's not what you think it is. Let me explain. Um, You think of envy as like you want something that other people want. So I see somebody in, I don't know, a dress, a coat, I don't know. I see some guy in a really nice suit. I think, yeah, I want that. And you think that's envy. No, that is not the medieval concept of envy. Envy instead is related to that, but it's deeper. In a kind of traditional medieval theological Thomistic context, envy is wanting other people to be as miserable as you are. It's not that you want that coat or that dress or those earrings or that sports car. It's that you want them not to have it so that they will then be as miserable as you are. It's not that you want the Porsche. It's that you don't want someone else to have it because then they'll be as miserable as you are. Let me give you an example. This is a medieval folklore story that makes the rounds. And uh, it kind of illustrates exactly what envy is. It's kind of silly, but it's a medieval joke, folklore story, but it indicates the root of envy. Um, So there's an avaricious man (laughs) and an envious man walking down the road. be medieval it's so weird yeah so here's this here's mr avarice mr greedy and here's mr envy and they're walking down the road as 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 they do they're walking down the road and the devil appears in front of them and the devil says i'll give each of you one wish i'll grant each of you one wish oh so the greedy man the avaricious man jumps out in front and says i'm gonna get twice whatever he gets To which the envious man says to the devil, well, then put one of my eyes out. Because thereby, right, the greedy man would have both his eyes put out. The root of envy is wanting someone to be at least as miserable as you are, if not more so. So put one of my eyes out. Because even if I lose an eye, then I get the joy of watching you lose both your eyes. That's the root sin of envy. We're going to come back to this endlessly in comedy. So now we got our seven deadly sins. And here they are. Lust, gluttony, sloth, avarice or greed, anger, envy, and pride. Seems right. There they are. Here's the problem. Dante doesn't adhere in inferno to the seven deadly sins because, A, you already know this, the first rung of hell is limbo. Wait a minute. Is that a deadly sin? Is limbo a deadly sin? And then we're going to start down through them. Canto 5, as I told you, is lust. Canto 6 is gluttony. Canto 7, part of it is Avarice, but we're going to find out that avarice is actually for Dante two things. It's not just being greedy and hoarding your money. It's also spending too much money. It's also wasting your money. Oh, that's a redefinition. And then we're going to go on down at the back of Canto 7 into Canto 8 to anger. Okay, that's a deadly sin. So lust, gluttony, avarice, anger. And then 
the rest of the sins of hell, right? You probably know there are nine rings of hell. Wait, I'm seven deadly sins? Well, guess what? We're going to jettison pride. We're going to jettison envy. So we've got lust, gluttony, avarice, anger. We're going to jettison sloth. What happened to envy, pride, and sloth? And what are the other rings of hell? Ready? Heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. That doesn't sound like the seven deadly sins. Limbo, lust, gluttony, avarice, anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and treachery. Oh my God, what? And so Dante is clearly taking this notion of the seven deadly sins and starting out in some direction, but wow, going in a completely different direction. And when we get down to the sins of violence, we're going to find out there's all kinds of sins of violence. There's, there's murder, of course. There's blasphemy. Did you know that that was a sin of violence? There's suicide. All right, that kind of makes sense as a sin of violence. Did you know that homosexuality is a sin of violence? It's, vi it's a violent sin. And you, want, you know what another violent sin is? Charging interest on loaned money. Those are the sins of violence. And when we get down to the sins of fraud, wait till I have to explain to you how theft, how stealing is a sin of fraud. Oh, see, the sins are going to get crazy and wild and the definitions are going to blow apart and blow open. Once we get back to purgatory, back like we ever got there, once we get to purgatory, the seven deadly sins are just going to be lined out as Gregory lined them out, as Pope Gregory I did it, we're going to go with it. But here in Inferno, I just want to start the discussion that the seven deadly sins will not control us after about Canto 7, maybe Canto 8. Right in there, they'll stop controlling us and the sins are going to change dramatically. Why? We'll talk endlessly about it, but I just wanted to set in motion this question of the seven deadly sins and how the seven deadly sins start out being about thoughts and end up being solely about actions. And for Dante, choices of the will. All that's ahead. And we're going to see the first bad choice. The first bad choice is lust. <laughs> of course it is. The first bad choice is lust. And in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, we're going to hit the lustful and the shocking revelation that lust may not all be what you think it is, or it may not actually work out in the way that you think it works out. Because Dante is always going to be running in front of any orthodoxy, and he's always going to be trying to figure out the root cause of whatever it is that he's talking about, pushing farther and farther and further and further into what it all means. So subscribe, rate the podcast, drop me a comment. That would be fabulous. And come back next time when we stare into the very nature of lust itself. Mm -hmm.